0: Hello and welcome to Future Watch. I'm Helen Joyce, The Economist's finance editor. And in the previous episodes, we've looked at the future of money and banking. Now it's the turn of cryptocurrency. Are these new digital currencies destined to fail or might they go on to replace current banking practices and even make physical money obsolete, making such things as minting money a thing of the past?
1: This morning i'm going to give you a run through of the process what goes into creating and making our circulating coins
0: some of our that's matthew rose from the royal mint in cardiff wales giving a tour around and showing how all the coins in the uk are made the royal mint has been physically making money in britain since anglo-saxon times in fact it was in 886 ad that alfred the great began issuing silver pennies bearing his portrait
2: various different
1: inscriptions on our two pound coins the most common one likely to come across is standing on the shoulders of giants, which is a quote by Sir Isaac Newton. A lot of people don't realise Isaac Newton, he ran the Royal Mint for the last 30 years of his life. He played a big role in the history of the
2: Royal Mint.
0: Um, So coins are being um,
2: counted and packaged, ready to be dispatched. We also
1: make them for lots of countries around the world. We make the Egyptian pound, we've made uh, coins for Ghana recently, coins for Uruguay, Or bimetallic, which are done in a very similar manner as well.
0: However, there's a new type of coin that's threatening to do away with all this history, and instead is made up of ones and zeros, rather than copper and zinc and nickel and tin like the ones that we lose down the back of the sofa. Joining me throughout this episode of Future Watch is Tim Cross, the Economist's technology editor. So, Tim, what technically is a cryptocurrency? How does it work?
3: Well, so to understand how it works, you have to understand what it was originally for. And the first cryptocurrency, and still the best known, is Bitcoin, which was created in 2008 as a sort of anarchic way to do cash over the internet, electronic cash. So it was it was invented by a bunch of people who call themselves cypherpunks, who generally think that government is mostly bad and big companies are mostly bad, and people should be free to transact with each other without too many restrictions. So what they wanted was something that was a a sort of electronic uh, analogue of cash, whereby there's no real way, or it's hard at least, for any kind of central authority to control spending patterns or have much influence on the system. You know, if I want to give you a ten-pound note, it's very hard for the government or anybody else to stop me from doing that. If I want to send you ten pounds over the existing electronic bank transfer network, then people can come in and interfere. And this was seen as as a sort of bad thing. So Bitcoin was an attempt to create a version of electronic money that could get around all these restrictions.
0: Every time, Tim, anyone says anything about a cryptocurrency, they always say, the blockchain. What's a blockchain?
3: Well, exactly. It's a blockchain, not the blockchain, because there are several. But basically, a blockchain is the piece of technology that makes a cryptocurrency actually work. And the best way to think about it is a sort of idiosyncratic kind of database. And the main idea is it's a way to solve a problem that plagues all forms of electronic money. So if I give you that £10 note we were talking about earlier, then I don't have it anymore and you do. But with electronic money, it doesn't really work that way because ultimately it's all just ones and zeros. It's files on my computer. And what that means is I could take the money that I have on my computer, copy the file, paste it somewhere else, and then send some money to Helen. Now, what that means is it looks like I've sent her £10, but I've still got the £10 because I've just copied and pasted the computer file that represents it. And that's called the the double spending problem. Now, the normal way around the double spending problem is to have one central authority who keeps track of what everybody does with the currency. So I send Helen £10. And the central authority will go, right, Helen has this money now, Tim doesn't have it anymore, and that's easy. The problem is that's exactly what the cryptocurrency advocates want to avoid. They don't want any kind of central organization. So they had to come up with a solution. And the solution was to effectively distribute copies of the database that keeps track of all the the transactions across all of the system's users. So instead of one central database, there are hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of copies all living out there on computers out in the world. And these computers talk to each other. And there's this elaborate consensus mechanism whereby they decide who gets to add entries to the database. So who gets to approve transactions and maintain it. And then the crypto bit comes from cryptography because it uses a cryptographic technique called a hash to make sure that once the database has been written, it's very hard for any of the system's users to come in and retroactively change it.
0: As Tim mentioned, there is one cryptocurrency that's more familiar than all the others and which kickstarted this whole idea of blockchains and how they could be used as the basis of digital coinage. Of course, I'm talking about Bitcoin.
4: Up and down, Bitcoin goes, and where it ends up. Well, if you do know that, would you mind sharing with the rest of the class?
0: Try the BitPlaza shopping app on Google Play or the Apple App Store.
1: Bitplaza- oh, You need to get in on this Bitcoin boom.
3: Crypto, bro? You see where things are going. Digital currencies like Bitcoin are the future.
4: Bitcoin, the first cryptocurrency, has been called a bubble, a fad, a scam, a tool for terrorists and crooks that is doomed to disappear. And yet, some fiercely smart people believe in Bitcoin.
1: Hello, hello, hello. Bitcoin is trash. Hello, hello. I can hear my voice now. My voice is a bit. That's
0: David Gerrard, the author of Attack of the 50 Foot Blockchain. And as you can tell, he's not a big fan of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency in general.
1: Bitcoin is a multi layered fractal lasagna of misconceptions and misunderstandings. If you say that something really weird, but you attach and also you'll get rich for free, that's a really good incentive to just keep doing the things and keep saying the words and maybe you'll get rich for free. It's a very big incentive to believe in it. But basically, the promise of Bitcoin was it was started by some people who thought hmm, money should work a bit more like gold. They were basically a variant of Austrian economics, gold bugs, except they thought maybe we can have digital gold that goes over the Internet. So that's the sort of genesis of Bitcoin. These ideas are still really deep in the Bitcoin subculture. The promise going as it started ramping up through 2011 and the first big bubble in 2013 was the much simpler promise of number go up, get free money. The promise of getting magical money for free is a very compelling one. But they did sort of carry the um, sort of Bitcoin Austrianism along with it. I should say, ordinary Austrian economists don't tend to go for Bitcoin that much. They will talk to Bitcoiners and they can have good discussions. They're the same sort of people, but they don't buy the message that Bitcoin's digital gold. They want actual gold.
0: Cryptocurrencies are often associated with the idea that they are a way to make a lot of money by investing. But that actually isn't the
1: case. This year we had the Bitcoin price go up from $3,000 to $13,000 and back down to $8,000, then up $2,000, down $2,000, and is really very convinced. Nobody actually believes this is a real price, that this is actually caused by market demand. And there's a lot of strong academic evidence that the price is completely manipulated. These price changes could not happen without some fraud going on. It's statistically impossible. I mean, crypto in general, Bitcoin, blockchain, cryptocurrency and so on, I think can usefully be thought of as a very, very complicated machine to funnel money from suckers to about 20 guys.
0: Tim, is there any example of how this technology is being used legally and effectively?
3: Not really, to be honest. You can see a sort of few small use cases. So there are a couple of online shops in America that will take cryptocurrency for real goods. You can just about use it for some form of of, uh, remittance. But I think generally, not really. And so just to give you a a sense of scale, there's a company called Chainalysis who analyse the Bitcoin blockchain and and you, you can pull all sorts of interesting information off it. When I last spoke to them, they reckoned that Bitcoin and all cryptocurrencies were accounting for about three billion dollars maybe of of online spending and about sort of two and a bit billion of that was going to what are called merchant service providers, who are people who handle payments for for businesses. And then about eight hundred and fifty million was being used on the darknet markets, which sell things like stolen credit card details and drugs and cheap medicines and that kind of thing. And if you compare that sort of three billion, it's barely a drop in the ocean of, of total consumer spending. And, you know, the fact remains a decade after Bitcoin was invented, no one's really using it for anything much other than speculation.
0: But is there a positive use case for the technology? One person who sees the potential is Kevin Werbach, an expert in the business and social implications of emerging technologies, such as those we're discussing. He's also the author of The Blockchain and the New Architecture of Trust.
4: Cryptocurrencies are getting a bad rap, but the bad rap is somewhat deserved. Uh, People tend to associate cryptocurrencies either with rampant financial speculation, like we saw in 2017 in particular, or with illegal activity, and the reality is, both of those are significant. They're they're some of the most significant current activities using cryptocurrencies, but the potential is much greater. And I think if you just limit your understanding of cryptocurrencies to people speculating on Bitcoin or to people using it for money laundering, then you miss uh, the real potential and all of the broader activity that's starting to happen around these kinds of tokens cryptocurrencies aren't just one thing. So we need to start by understanding that when we talk about cryptocurrencies, we're talking about at least three and perhaps four different activities. So one is transacting. One is using something as a form of money, as a form of currency. And that, to some extent, was the original vision of Bitcoin. And that's, to some extent, the vision of uh, newer digital currencies like Facebook's Libra to really substitute for uh, dollars or pounds or euros. The second use is for trans- is for taking this as a new kind of financial asset class to uh, invest or speculate on its future value. The uh, third one is for trust minimizing. So if we have some sort of application, being able to replace that with a more decentralized application. So you think about something like Uber, uh, which is basically a network connecting drivers and riders using a crypto asset, a cryptocurrency token, to power that, to basically decentralize it. Um, And then a fourth use is transacting. A fourth use, um, which doesn't necessarily require a user-facing token, is to manage transactions on a network and basically track, for example, across a supply chain using blockchain as the underlying ledger. So those are four distinct use cases. All of them at the root have some sort of either cryptocurrency or some sort of underlying token representing assets on a distributed network, but they all work in very different ways.
1: Here's David Gerard again. So he has got a trading use case. But in the payments use case, it does have a small one. It's shifting money internationally. There are people who do this completely above board and pay their taxes and so forth. It's just it's easier to get Bitcoin or Ether in and out of a country than dollars maybe. There are payment providers, Veeam is one, who they do international remittances. They sometimes use Swift. Sometimes they use Bitcoin or Ether, you know, whichever is cheaper on that day for that transaction. So it's sometimes competitive, but it's not a slam dunk, you know. But there isn't really a very big use case. There is a small use case, but not a very big one.
0: It sounds like the one thing that it could be really useful for is transferring money. It isn't actually being used that much. So why is there even a problem?
3: I think part of the problem is that if you... Set up a currency whose goal is to try and avoid any kind of regulation. Then as an inevitable side effect, you're going to attract a lot of people who have a strong interest in avoiding any kind of regulation. So there have been endless scams and frauds taking place with cryptocurrency, people inventing their own versions, these so-called altcoins, you know, selling them and then running off with the money. Cryptocurrency exchanges have been hacked. There's allegations of, you know, very, very widespread price manipulation, even on sort of Bitcoin, which is the biggest the biggest of the cryptocurrencies. And I think a large number of people who play in this space are, frankly, quite shady.
0: What about the sort of fundamentals of it? Suppose everybody who was using it was actually very well-intentioned. Is it really up to the job of becoming a widespread currency?
3: I think Bitcoin certainly isn't as it currently stands. And if you go back to what we talked about with the blockchain, the process of having to distribute your database among zillions of users makes it very, very unwieldy. You have to make sure that everyone's up to date with the latest version and the amount of network traffic that has to go between people scales very rapidly as the number of users rise. So what that means is for Bitcoin, for instance, uh, the protocol specifies that the database is updated once every 10 minutes on average. And there's a specific amount of information that can be added to it in that 10 minute period. When you boil all that down, it basically means that Bitcoin struggles to accommodate much more than about seven transactions a second. Now, if you look at a system like Visa, which is an existing payments network, that can cope with thousands or even tens of thousands of transactions a second. And various people have tried various schemes to try and speed blockchains up, but none of them have really worked all that well. So I think, you know, the technology, despite people having worked on it for 10 years, still remains orders of magnitude too clunky to ever replace something like Visa.
0: As alluded to earlier, the first uses of cryptocurrency were to hide transactions from prying eyes and to purchase illegal items without any way of it being tracked. However, today governments have become wise to this and are able to deal with it. Shreema Pedy wrote about this for The Economist and found that being able to hide behind anonymity just isn't true anymore
2: perceptions about cryptocurrencies are actually changing. So initially, cryptocurrencies were known to be, or people thought they were anonymous, particularly in 2012, 2013, when things were taking off. So what's interesting is that cryptocurrencies live on the blockchain, which is a public ledger where every transaction is recorded. So while it is publicly available, it doesn't mean necessarily that you would know who that person is. And that's because personal information, for example, your name or your address, isn't linked with cryptocurrency accounts. What happened recently is that a lot of prosecutors across America, as well as other nations, have been trying to take advantage of the tools available to kind of trace back different Bitcoin transactions or other cryptocurrency transactions and link it up to information that they have on particular individuals. One company, Chain Analysis, who I spoke to, they help governments actually map out these transactions. And then based on those transactions, you can link it up to Other exchanges, for example, where an individual might on-road or off-road. So essentially, if they want to transfer Bitcoin into U.S. dollars. And so because all these exchanges have KYC requirements or know your customer requirements and anti-money laundering requirements, they're required to actually have information on that particular individual. And so then you're able to link it up and trace that this is the bad actor and then be able to kind of put this web of transactions together and rest them. With a lot of the anonymity
0: being taken away, it seems that cryptocurrencies would be even less appealing to many people. But could this be about to change? There's a new potential player looking to enter the market next year called Libra, and it's already making a bit of a splash. Tim, tell us about Libra.
3: So Libra is a digital currency that's been proposed by Facebook, and you'll notice that I was very careful not to say it's a cryptocurrency, because at the moment, we still don't really know quite how it's meant to work. There's a white paper, but it doesn't go into huge amounts of detail. And some of the detail it does go into seems to be a bit contradictory. We do know that the person at Facebook whose idea this was, who's been really pushing it, a guy called David Marcus, he is a big fan of Bitcoin. And a lot of the use cases that Facebook has floated for Libra are similar to the ones that people have floated for Bitcoin. So they talk about banking the unbanked, you know, providing financial services to poor people around the world who struggle at the moment to access the the conventional financial system and then of course the other assumption or the other line of thinking is that facebook has probably looked at services like wechat pay and alipay which handle huge amounts of transactions in china and thought if we can get some kind of currency on our platform as well then this will drive more people to use facebook and use our apps and we'll make more money
1: libra's software may or may not actually be a blockchain proper whatever that is then certainly not going to operate in criminal shadows. They do know better than that. They realize that Facebook's under the loving eye of Sauron. As far as governments go, they're quite aware of that. But what they are is inspired by Bitcoin. And you can see that all through the Libra white papers. There's a lot of ideas in there which are very much the pitch for Bitcoin. And in particular, a lot of the ideas they take is wresting money from the hands of government, having it done by sensible people, meaning them rich anarcho capitalists who think that the world would be so much better if it was run by rich guys instead of those foolish governments.
0: So what has the effect of the giant Facebook been on other players in this market? And has it given some momentum to cryptocurrencies?
3: I think Libra probably did give some kind of momentum to cryptocurrencies shortly after it was it was announced. Whether that will continue, particularly since Libra seems to be struggling a bit at the moment, I think that's less clear. The other thing that lots of people point to is uh, Xi Jinping, the president of China, who dropped the B-word in a speech last month saying that you know this is one of the technologies China needed to, to get across, that blockchains were an important part of its future. Again, how seriously to take that I think is is slightly up in the air. China's also been trying to crack down on aspects of cryptocurrency. So it's been trying to suppress the big, very energy hungry cryptocurrency mining operations are happening in China, and it hasn't been very fond of a lot of the sort of speculative manias that have cropped up around cryptocurrencies. I think the other place that Libra might have had an effect is sort of prodding central banks to have a look at this idea of issuing digital currencies of their own. These don't necessarily have to be cryptocurrencies. And in fact, given the limitations of blockchains, it might be a bit odd to run them in that way, particularly since if it's managed by the central bank, then you have a central point of control. So the only real reason to use blockchains at that point goes away. Central banks quite like this idea. It will give them sort of tighter control of the money supply. It might be useful for people who could potentially have accounts directly with the central bank rather than with some retail bank, which in turn banks with the central bank. But I think all of this is at a pretty early stage yet. And again, it's been at an early stage for many years. So these conversations have been been kicking around for a while. The central bank of Canada has run several experiments into cryptocurrencies and and blockchains. And I think it's quite telling that, you know, despite having done that several years later, there's still no sign of any kind of blockchain version of the Canadian dollar.
1: Here's David Gerrard again. So they do take a lot of ideas from cryptocurrency from Bitcoin. So maybe it'll change everything. But again, I'd like to see that actually happening because so far it's been a 10 year history of failure. And it's possible that 10 years of failure will obviously be followed by an 11th year of success. But you know, that isn't actually what you'd predict usually. Compared to the long history of the Royal Mint, 10 years is
0: nothing. And perhaps being worried is a bit premature. Here's Mark Loveridge from the Royal Mint. Yeah, so in terms of cryptocurrency, it, it's not something that's on our radar. For us, it's all about tangible products. And so when we look at our different investment opportunities and the coins and the medals and the unique gifts we, we create, it's all around our design and craftsmanship. And at the moment, cryptocurrency doesn't fall within our area of interest. In the foreseeable future, we see coins and cash around for, for a very long time yet. Even if we look out to when cash may be at a point where it's only representing 15% of all transactions, there will still be 4 billion transactions in the UK required. And that's the position that Sweden are at at the moment. They're around 15% of transactions. And they found that they were accelerating to a cashless economy too quickly and were finding themselves putting the brakes on um, to try and slow that progression. And that's something the UK has identified early. And that's why there's a lot of great work going on to make sure that no one's left behind. Mark and the Royal Mint aren't quite worried yet. Tim, are they right?
3: So my take on the whole thing after 10 years is that, you know, cryptocurrencies, they started life as an anarchist political project. They quickly got co-opted into a get-rich-quick scheme. And then in the last maybe five or six years, people have been casting about looking for legitimate uses. Now, it's hard to predict the future. You know, maybe someone will come up with one the week after this podcast goes live. But I think for now, and I'm not, All that convinced it will change. I think they're a very technically neat solution. Still looking for, but failing to find a problem.
0: I take it you don't have any Bitcoin then?
3: I'm afraid I don't. I'm what they call a no-coiner.
0: A no-coiner. Although this is in reference to not having any Bitcoins, perhaps one day we might all be physical no-coiners. If in the future our pockets are no longer weighed down by physical money, it seems that it won't be because of the rise of cryptocurrency. Instead, it will be because of all the other technologies that we've been discussing right through Future Watch, like mobile payments, neobanks and digital wallets. That's all for this episode and series of Future Watch. I'm Helen Joyce, and in London, this is The Economist.